have questions already? Yes, I do have questions. We've now started. <laughs> All right, Mom, where are we? We're here at the house, sitting on the sofa um, on Long Beach Island. <laughs> okay, so I've actually been wanting to interview you about this topic for a while. Yes, we are related. However, you also have two master's degrees and a PhD. What are the degrees in? I have a master's in education, a master's in reading, literacy education, and then a PhD in reading and language arts from the University of Pennsylvania. From UPenn. UPenn. UPenn, where you also taught for a short while. For four or five years, and then I ran the reading specialist certification program there too. Oh, at UPenn? I thought you only did that at Cabrini. No. No, I did it at Penn, which really was the training ground for me to then take that, a lot of that, what I learned, and take it to Cabrini. Wow. I did not know that. <laughs> I just found that out. Okay. Well, both you and Dad were educators. So growing up in this household, we clearly sat around, and I remember dining room conversations about education I remember sitting here on these couches talking about different modalities of learning and everything. Now, I have only three questions, <laughs> but I feel as though the three questions will dive deep into what you are quite good at because that secondary exposure to these topics, I think, has helped me teach well as a church worker and then now as a professor, but... Here are the three questions, and they're based off of educational purposes, okay. educational theories. Okay, we'll do one at a time, but here are the three. First, what is informational learning? Two, what is constructivist learning? And then three, what is transformational learning? Okay. And I feel as though in that order, is that the best order to yeah, do them? that would work. Okay. So... In a classroom setting, when people are trying to learn, I guess there, it, this doesn't have to just be in a classroom. This can also be in a mechanics mm -hmm. garage, anywhere that learning could happen, whether you're out in the forest, not just in a specific classroom. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's break it down. What is informational learning? Maybe you explain, and then I'll have some follow-up questions. Well, informational learning is how I was taught. Here, you can hold the microphone. Oh. <laughs> informational learning is actually how I was taught back in the um, 50s, um, early, early 50s. And just about anyone who is of my age, and that would be 71, more than likely was taught in the same way because informational learning was a mode. It was a, the means by which a teacher stood at the front of the room sent the information back out to the students. The students were then tested or quizzed and had to provide documentation they learned that. And when they hadn't learned the a set of inf information or data that was expected of them, they were given an appropriate grade or given remediation or um, told that they had not met the criteria and failed. So with information, basically it's all database. It's information that would be expected of someone to know. For example, 
Um, if I were to be studying facts about uh, how dad used to study geography, um, I would have had to treat it as information because there wouldn't have been much for me to connect it with other than to memorize the facts, uh, memorize the data, whether it had to do with the rock formations or the, where the capitals were. I, I would have nothing to hold on to it. Part of the problem in many classrooms is that the students, it's expected that the students will have the background of knowledge for these types of, this type of content when in fact they don't. And truthfully, if the teachers haven't had a teacher's manual that posts exactly what it is that they need to teach so the students can pass the assessments that were also published by that same publisher, the teachers wouldn't have been able to teach precisely what it was that they were expected to learn. Now that's all well and good, and for many people it worked. I mean, obviously it worked for me. Um, Children and adolescents who have learning differences would not have had that kind of um, expectation and, and the, uh, the success. And the other piece is that people who were taught this way expect that all education since they've been in school should conform to the same mode of instruction. And since that time... So that means people that learned the informational way as students then become teachers that think that informational is the way to keep doing it to the next generation. Right, right. Okay. Or they become parents and they expect that their own teachers of their own children will be using informational um, pedagogies as a way of teaching. And they begin to doubt seriously um, other ways of providing instruction for students. Wow. How you are taught how you were taught as a child and an adolescent often becomes the worldview of how all education should proceed. Of all education, no matter what type it is. I'm sure there's some variations, but it's just the mindset. The teacher is the sage, the teacher's in the front of the room, that's why the desk is in the front of the room, that's why the chairs and the um, tables are oriented towards the front of the room, because the front where the teacher resides um, is where the authority resides within the education of information. So the organizing of the seats even Absolutely. is a Absolutely. telltale sign of where the locus of information is. So if, it, if the chairs are in a circle, it tells you that the information is among us. More than likely, it, it, more than likely it shows that you're not using um, pedagogies based on information to teach okay so let's maybe maybe we should try to come up with a practical so let's say it's a a high schooler is learning philosophy okay, okay. what's that look for <laughs> there's intro philosophy courses oh, or in high school psychology. or psychology sure so Students would then come to high school, they would sit in their chairs that face forward, and then they would devote all of their attention to the learned sage up in front. As well as what they have read to prepare for that day's assignment. Okay. Or they'll be taught, and then they're told to go back and to read more about what was just taught. But it's solely receiving information. 
Well, you're assuming that they have a teacher who is younger and has learned other ways of education. If they have a teacher who's only been taught through the direct instruction. Information. Yeah, and by that I mean lecture, um, use of a board, a whiteboard, or um, um, a video, or... um, a blackboard to supplement what it is you're saying. Sometimes people will bring in charts or they'll bring in displays. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, for the most part, very much driven by finite information that needs to be passed on. Okay. I would guess that the pros of this mode of learning is that maybe a lot of information can get sent out in a factory style. You just copy-paste the same content four times a day to four different groups of students. That's right. So that's... And it can also be assessed very easily through direct questioning. Yes or no answers or brief answers that the teacher then has to um, read a response and score appropriately. Okay. Rarely would uh, direct instruction information-based instruction be assessed solely through essays because it wouldn't be a finite criteria upon which to address that. Because in informational learning, they just have to learn the information. It's not about them interpreting it according to... Yeah. Okay. But a con to this could be what do you do with students that don't do well with just receiving information? They need hands-on. They need time to wrestle with it. They need to debate it and talk it out. Yeah. What, what could be another con? Well, like you and I had talked yesterday that in every family of straights, there will be a wiggly, squiggly line, <laughs> Yeah. which is something Dad and I used to say to each other all the time uh-huh. when we had youth group, because yeah. we had plenty of squiggly lines in the youth group, right? In a classroom of straights, the direct informational learning will work well because they do well with order. They do well with having rules to follow. However, the squiggly lines, those children who have a wealth of information within them, but they need alternative ways of demonstrating their strengths and their knowledge base. Mm. And typically that is not assessed well through true and false tests, uh, Mm -hmm. short answer tests, uh, fill in the blanks, that kind of thing. So then what is constructivist learning? If informational means that the high school student goes to class, sits forward, pays attention to the person up in front, tells them all the information to help them to pass the test. And feeds it back midterm or at the end of the the semester, right? Okay. How would you define what is constructivist? Oh, and by the way, at the end of this, we're going to bring this back to church culture. Okay. Okay. So... What is constructivist learning? You take it. Constructivist learning actually came about um, in the late 70s, early 80s, when we were coming to understand more clearly how the, the neural system within the brain is organized and how we learn to code information and archive it within our neural network, which is the brain, in ways that show connections 
among the data and the information that's been learned. For example, we call that schema. You have a schema about... A framework? It's a framework, but it's also a, a huge, and I mean billions of cells that connect with one another. Um, and you build, you continue to build that network as you learn more. So, you know, when you were in elementary school, you had started to build schema uh, related to what has wheels, where the solar system happens to be, how the uh, parts of, actually emotional intelligence is part of this. How do you know when someone is upset? How do we, you re respond to that? Right. So when you had built these many, many, many schemas, out of that finite data, which is what we call schemata. Those schemas had connections. So if I had said to you, okay, tell me everything that you know that's red. And more than likely the first thought would have been, this would have been- Fire truck. Fire truck, stop sign, apple. Okay. okay. But now having, being as old as you are, your schema for what is read is so much more advanced, not only because of what you read vicariously, but also by, um, by your own life experience. Red is also the deepest um, uh, color within a sunset on a, a, night, a day when there's a certain atmospheric moisture content. Mm -hmm. Red would be what you see at the base of a flame. Red would be, uh, or it could be as simple as red marks on a, on a paper that's been re returned to you, but it could also mean that you've, now I can't think of all the things that are red, but it, you're spicy somebody's angry someone is well you, the embarrassed you you know that being red is very rich and extends over all kinds of schema in geography in in geology in hmm. human development that kind of thing so once we understood that our brain is composed of schema we realized that students learn to expand their schema a, by what they've read, and B, by their life experience, and C, what they've heard other people who have experienced and read things differently from them mm -hmm. have learned. And we learned the value of putting students in groups so that they could hear each other's thinking, expanding their thinking, and construct new ways of knowing. Okay, so then what would be the seating chart for a more constructivist learning. It would not be facing forward. What would it be? It would be small groups of students facing each other, usually anywhere from four to six. It depends on the, the, the student population. I mean, if you have a lot of squiggly lines in your room, you're going to have to either have them seated close to you just so you can stay on top of where, where they happen to be focusing or, um, you need to be able to move around and to, to monitor what's happening in the classroom. So they're not all looking forward. They're learning as much from each other as they are learning from the teacher. Because as young adults, and then as college age students, if they choose to do that and going into the workplace, they need to learn how to give and take in discussion, they need to learn how to listen well and to add on to what other people have said. They also need to know how to question what it is they've heard other people say so that they can begin- Questioning. 
what was is just different from in the informational. Oh, absolutely. Tier. Because How? you're asking them to extend the schema you've already started to build on your own. And you're not questioning to um, devalue it and claim that it's inaccurate. You want to have clarity on why they believe what they believe when they believe it. So the, the notion is that we are consistently, continually increasing our schemas related to worldviews of any number of topics. And we learn tremendous amounts by hearing others and being able to add on to our own schema from what we've learned. So oftentimes at the end of an hour, if you've been teaching uh, constructively, no, from a constructivist perspective, yes, you have, a, you've, you've sent out a prompt, a student has responded. In an informational context, you would have said, great job, you got that right, and you move on to the next question. In constructivist paradigms, you'd say, that was a great, great comment. I, I think a lot of us can connect with that. Who can add on to or connect with what Jamie just said? And so it immediately defers the authority back to the student or other students who can add to that conversation. And once you had half an hour, 45 minutes, or an hour of that, where the group is as a whole, cognitively, will be very different from where you would have been if you had taught from an informational stance. In this case, they would have learned about each other's way of thinking, and they have what we call a shared wisdom that's been created mm. among themselves. Okay, that leads me to think of two things. Okay. One, in the informational mode of learning, questions exist so that you can get the precise answer so you know the precise. So you can assess. So you right. can assess. In this second model, you ask questions, like you said, not to devalue, but to maybe connect it with other things that you already thought outside of that classroom. And, and apply, and apply what you know to other aspects of your life. So this is far more dialogue-based. This is dialogical, not monological with one teacher one voice up right. in front it's a shared shared um shared authority which is why the rooms might have small groups or sit in a circle mm -hmm. rather than all facing one way or, or clusters however you want to do that okay and then the second thought i had was it sounds as though the classroom is kind of building its own and editing in the in real time its own Wikipedia page of collective knowledge <laughs> that connects it with multiple other things. And so everybody brings their own little hyperlink, but I could see the constructivist, this, this type of learning might feel slower in learning than the informational, which doesn't involve dialogue or bringing in your own life experience. So if you were raised thinking informational models, how learning happens, you might think that's the fastest way of getting it done, and this might feel very slow in getting it done. Does that make sense? One way of thinking about it is that informational learning is often seen as being very efficient because there's a very quick way of assessing yes or no, you're right or you're wrong. 
Um, but in transformational learning, it takes. This is constructive. I'm sorry. In constructivist learning, it takes um, nuance. It takes time to distill what the students are telling you in their conversations to see whether or not they have met the learning objectives that you've set for that hour. Okay. And also your objectives will not just include content knowledge. They will also include social dynamics, their ability to listen well, to add on to, to confirm or to negate in a way that is uh, respectful because there's, it's tremendously respect driven. We want to honor what people are bringing to the classroom mm. rather than, as I was taught to teach, talking to an empty slate, tabula rasa. Mm -hmm. So the constructivist, it gets its title because you're, you are trying to build a conversation together with all the participants, right? But would you say that disagreement maybe not argument, but disagreement is a more positive um, ingredient right. Right. to a constructivist classroom? Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't even call it disagreement. It would be, um, it tends to be more of a, a disagreement has a defect efficiency orientation, but a difference means it honors the fact that you just, you just basically have had a different worldview, different life experience. And that you see things differently. Okay. I feel as though that's way better. I mean, not that I, I guess the question is what are the outcomes that you're shooting for? It's not that one mode is necessarily better than another, but you do have to maybe recognize what is the end goal that this content in class is trying to gear towards. Well, when you and Steve were little, Certainly, there were ways by which Dad and I were shaping you that were informationally based. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch <laughs> the knobs, you know. Uh, don't run out the door without making sure the floor is on the porch. Oh, Remember yeah. when you fell right yeah. through the door? Okay. Uh -huh. But as you got older, we started to swap over, to switch over to um, more constructivist ways of thinking. Remember last time this happened, what did we do? How did we talk about it? Mm. Where did, what kinds of changes can you make for next time? Um, when else did this occur to you? Now, how can you, how can you use that next time this occurs in your life? Right. So we actually started raising you from more of a constructivist paradigm, which truthfully I never really thought about until I was sitting here talking to you just now. That was an insight you just had right yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Should we do the third one? Sure. Okay. What is transformational learning? So it's not the same thing as informational, which is receiving information. It's not the same thing as constructivist, where the classroom is trying to build a conversation and build its own collective Wikipedia page. Shared wisdom. Shared wisdom. So informational is about information. Constructivist is about wisdom. In informational learning, um, the authority lies within the facts and the teacher who has them. And ultimately, the, the teaching uh, manual that the teacher is assigned to. Right? Okay. In constructivist learning, 
the locus of control is actually among the students within small groups. The teacher is more of a guide and a facilitator mm -hmm. than the sole authority of the context. That doesn't mean there aren't learning objectives and there isn't a, a teacher's manual, but um, more authority is given to the children's learning and what they are bringing to the classroom at the point of instruction. Okay, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'm going to hand you the microphone. What is transformational learning? Well, once we went through decades of uh, teachers being seen as the sole provider of information, and really that, that roots all the way back to the 1920s when we had our first set of research efforts put into the teaching and learning processes. So we had that for about 50 years, and certainly after World War II, there was a heavy emphasis on making sure that certain uh, criteria were met and certain learning objectives were met. Uh, teaching reading and writing literacy was looked very differently when I started in 1971. And then, of course, with the advent of cognitive psychology in the 19, uh, 1980s or so, we moved into constructivist teaching. Well, we, and then the, the authority actually resided among the students as learners bringing their own schema and their own life experience. Slowly over time, we realized that is a, there's a huge difference between learning to read so that you can report back what it is that you've learned, right. uh, learning to read so that you can comprehend well, add on to and apply what we've just read. Uh -huh. And also being able to take that and begin to embed it into, not only into our own schema, but our worldview and our, and our value system. So transformational learning focuses on how what I've just learned and what I've just read is changing me as a person. And that's more than... Not to report. Not to report back, not to share and to add on to what other people have said, which is constructivist, mm -hmm. but rather to go inward and see how that is making a difference in my own life. So transformational. Informational is about facts. reporting back the facts. Constructivist is about collective and community-oriented learning transformational you use the phrase turn inward with personal. the in with very it personal. it's very very personal um we've all read things that made a difference in our lives that changed our outlook that made a, a significant impact on how we viewed certain phenomena in the world um I find most of the reading that I do that's transformational tends to be either spiritually based, such as what I'm, mm -hmm. I'm reading for um, things that you and I are involved with, but also my own scripture study, mm -hmm. um, my own um, dwelling in the word, which is a spiritual practice that we're, we're teaching down at our church right now, whereby you can read a, let's say a psalm. You can read a psalm and be able to report back some of the things that the psalmist was either sharing, celebrating, or lamenting, right? You can also read it and then share among yourselves what each of you heard and how that extended your thinking. But to read a psalm and have it make a significant difference in your own 
internal valuation of what life is like and meaning is like is a completely different mm. animal, right? Um, can I be personal? Sure. Okay. Um, when Dad was dying and we knew we the direction that we were headed, um, I would wake up in the middle of the night and be tense and, you know, the what-ifs and the what-ifs. And I started to recite to myself the 23rd Psalm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you said that to us. You told us you did Yeah, that. and it, 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 was it wrote in the beginning? Absolutely, because I, I, I was just so deep into the thinking uh, that I was bringing to that. And over time, it changed me so that when I was... Re- the psalm that you've known. For decades. I mean, I've been going to Sunday school since I was two, <laughs> and I'm 71. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's amazing. Right. So something that I could repeat back by rote, which would be certainly from informational points of view. Um, it it changed how I viewed life and living. It, it changed how I viewed the sovereignty of God. Um, it changed how I saw the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. Well, that's transformational. So when but it was also very reflective. Absolutely. And it was intensely personal. And most transformational learning is extremely personal. Some people shy away from that. I seem to be drawn to that. Um, so, but informational. Here. Informational is not interested in being personal. Constructivist does it maybe more so because you're starting to bring in but transformational is (coughs) extremely personal right right so like when we when we're doing the dwelling in the word we'll read the word we'll read the scripture and it's usually not a passage like the 23rd psalm it might be only one or two verses and then somebody else reads it again and then somebody else reads it again oftentimes when you have multiple readers you have multiple points of intonation Inflection. Inflection. And you, you make a connection you didn't make before. And then you say, we would say to the group, so what connection can you make with this? And then basically you put your hands in your lap and you wait until someone has thought through what that connection is and made the choice to speak out loud and has the courage to speak out loud. And then they began to would begin to, to share what that difference mm-hmm. was within them. It takes time to nurture transformational learning. As an instructor, I would say it takes equal amounts of time for the individual learner to allow that text to transform them. Mm. And it's never the same among individuals. Different, the same text can be processed by, in different lengths of time by different individuals because of who they're bringing to that text. Mm-hmm. Right. What I find most fascinating is how we build within classroom alert, classrooms with a learning environment whereby students feel that their contributions will be honored and they therefore can say what they are thinking without fear of rebuttal or fear of um, being shot down. Um, Remember how I shared with you how I had a student once, and when he what his response really oh, wasn't the big guy, what, the big guy back center row, 
And I said, well, that was a great idea. And immediately he said, oh, thanks for bringing me down gently, Doc. Thanks for shooting me down <laughs> easy, Doc. <laughs> okay. So in, in constructivist paradigms, that's just the way of being. I mean, sometimes the best classroom conversations we had were after classes ended and people were milling about coming to terms with each other, making closure and coming up and we'd be talking among ourselves. And before we know it, there's somebody else knocking on the door. They have to get into the classroom. Those were the really rich conversations. Yeah. Right. Um, but I am equally enthralled by. No, just hold it closer. I'm equally enthralled by um, transform. Now that I'm older, transformational learning and how the kinds of opportunities I can bring to classrooms and, and learners, students, have the potential to be transformational. And maybe that's because I'm 71 and I won't be teaching much more than 15 more years. Mm. I don't know. I don't think I really thought much about it when I was first starting to teach. I was too busy sending out facts and figures and but letters of the <laughs> alphabet and the sounds of the alphabet in first grade, right? right? So, um, I've actually, because of the time and because the literature has taken us in different different places, I think we've learned so much more about the literacy processes. Certainly the use of technology is making a difference um, in what we're learning. And also we're learning a lot about the brain and what reading does mm -hmm. and learning does uh, neurologically for the brain. Right. So let's connect it to church culture. So I often teach teens and college and sometimes adults in different places, sometimes in a classroom setting, sometimes from a pulpit, sometimes on retreats. And I, I kind of see different expectations happen in each of those rooms. Oh, yeah, because the contexts are different. Right. But from a pulpit, some people might choose to maybe not even consciously, but assume that from the pulpit, they're doing informational learning. They may not know that term, but they come to learn as if it's from a lecture. Whereas it seems as though maybe more uh, African-American churches, their pulpit experience is more, not necessarily constructivist, but there's a back and forth dialogical between the person and the community as they're like keep going bring it back like hallelujah right but then i think about retreats and i think about why i seem to enjoy retreats far more than teaching the sunday school it's because over a weekend we can have the time to do more constructivist and maybe even transformational conversations but i do feel as though there's a push-pull where people come to churches thinking maybe not consciously but assuming that we should be doing informational learning whereas it seems as though jesus was more interested in transformational learning yes Yes. Was Jesus a constructivist rabbi? <laughs> before he even right? had that word, actually, right. before they even had it. I, actually, I have several thoughts of that. And it's, it's really not surprising that people attend church expecting it to be highly informational. Okay. All of the seats are oriented towards the front. The person who is almost frequently uh, has studied in this discipline 
is in the front and oftentimes raised up um, onto a pulpit, steps or right. a platform. So the, first off, from your prior experience, looking at the demographic of where I go to church, where you were raised, many of the people there are 60 years of age and older. Mm -hmm. This looks very much like what a classroom looks like. You know, the instructor's in the front, and the instructor has more learning and more uh, formal education in this topic than I do, and I'm oriented towards the front like everybody else. Wow. So, you, you know, w we bring our own history to with the church setting that we go to, to the right. church setting that we go to. And that's not a judgment. Oh, absolutely that's not, not. Thing. Oh, no. Informational learning is good. It's how we do it. It's how we maybe get started on it. Well, and then when our church came up with the big screens on either side, oh my gosh, oh, we didn't have that before when we were learning. I mean, all of a sudden it was like, whoa, you know, it was a huge, well, it was a huge debate that we had. Do we bring these screens in or not? Because people weren't interested in the technology, the use of technology. But the reason why you're so drawn, I assume, to retreat learning and things like that is that you're very much a constructivist as a young person, as a child and an adolescent, certainly, and in college, you folks would come home and we would sit after supper and talk till 10, 10.30 at night. On these couches. On these couches. Yeah. About a multitude of things. And it didn't matter what you said or Steve said or dad said or I said, it be, would be valued. It could be questioned because, you know, that's how you tease out the nuances of what it is that you want to understand more clearly. But you were raised in a constructivist setting. Now, knowing... The living room was a, was constru a constructivist classroom. Yeah. I would like to say the kitchen table was, but the t kitchen table was also when we would set down the boundaries. <laughs> uh, excuse me. You yeah. know, you need to be here. You need to eat at six o'clock. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but the beauty of the constructivist paradigm, again, remember that there are a number of people bringing their own background and individual schemas to a setting, which means that the richness sitting in that room among the 20 youth who are there with you, whom you may know very well, but yet still have a tremendous amount to still learn about them because you only see them so many hours of, of uh, you know, of the week. The word that is used in cognitive psychology is unpacking. There is time. Unpack. You need to unpack what the individuals believe, what they've experienced, what this means to them as individuals, and then to form that shared wisdom that you finally get to at one o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. I mean, you would say to me, boy, you know, it was great. We had the most wonderful conversations, oftentimes over food, and food does help, but oftentimes late at night where some kids are sleeping and some are sitting in the, in the sofas, they're all over the place, so to speak, cognitively as well as socially but they all know that they're valued and they come together and when with the skill of a of the facilitator are able to come up with the four five six nuggets of that weekend of what they've learned and what they're going to try to accomplish in their growing spirituality in the next couple of weeks or months mm -hmm. so um retreats have tremendous tremendous opportunities 
for people to be transformed. Is it just because of longer time frame? Longer time frame, more relaxed um, mindset. I don't have to have this done. I don't have to have learned this or I've taught this within the next 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. There's no seating all facing one direction. And, and the seating changes with every activity and with every, someone gets up and goes and gets something to eat. Somebody else takes that spot. I mean, the seating is always, always changing. Hmm. And so the social dynamics become very fluid. And in classrooms, movement is not, usually not fluid at all. So is it helpful for church communities to think in each of these three ways you don't want to be focused too much in one way i mean i understand hopefully church cultures when they try to do what's called discipleship or just apprenticeship or how to help people be better students of the biblical or spiritual journey the goal i would guess is to be transformational not informational that doesn't mean you don't do informational sometimes. Right. In every, in every religion and in every denomination, there is a canon, which is a set of belief systems that are distinctly Presbyterian, distinctly Lutheran, which is how I was right, raised. Their code, their... Their, their, their um, um, way of, ways of thinking. Guidelines. Guidelines. Okay. So you said you were starting a confirmation class. Well, there are certain, there's a certain canon of things that must be taught to someone who's getting ready for, to be confirmed or to have a, a early first communion if you're in the Catholic tradition and things like that. And to make sure that that canon is being taught and is being learned and that person has, has understood and, and can be assessed in that, you, at some way in shape and form you're going to have to make sure that the students have learned that that's informational learning to expect that also to be transformational is probably a little early because they don't yet know enough nor have experienced enough of those pieces all right and then that's where christian ed comes into play whether your youth ministry or your sunday school programs or your adult ed when they begin to take that canon and they begin to see what it means among themselves to create a shared wisdom of what that means among ourselves and then how that can change our way of thinking. So for example, we, uh, um, we're going to be having round tables again at church once we get back in okay. there in March. And the pastor and I have already talked about what that round table for at least for the first two are, are going to look like. And they're basically going to focus on what the experience of the pandemic has felt like to us as individuals who were isolated for 9, 10, 12 months. The second one's going to focus on what we've now come to understand in terms of the value of what those that experience meant to us and how we grew from that. Is that first question constructivist and that second one transformational? Absolutely. Wow. Okay. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's exactly what we're going to do. So I, I want them to be able to unpack given their diverse Unpack. experiences, what the last 9, 10, 11 months have felt like, what they experienced. I mean, we have people who have not been on technology. They've not been to a service because they don't have the, the um, computer to do so. We send them the 
um, bulletin, but that's all that they've had to go to church. Um, and then we have people who've been able to log on. and yeah. So we're going to talk about what it felt like. I will probably refer to it as the spirituality of winter. What was it like to be isolated, to feel alone, to feel, to experience extended silence or extended solace? Right. Right. And we'll get into other aspects that might be more more upbeat than that. But the second time we're going to talk, as, as we debrief again, it's going to be, so what did you... What have you come to appreciate about the role of solitude in your spiritual life mm-hmm. or the, the role of silence, extended silence in your spiritual or life? Stillness. I love stillness. That no, Who's the fellow that said hurry and. Oh, uh, Richard Foster. Richard Foster talks about hurry, noise and crowds are the three greatest obstacles towards okay. the spiritual path. So, knowing we had no hurry, we had no crowds, and we had no noise, unless we turned on the TV, the, the t- opportunity was ripe for us to grow in spirituality. And that's what I want to unpack the second night. And, you know, I would, I would love to say that I have three, four, third, fourth, and fifth already, but I can't plan that far ahead. Because I don't know what they're going to bring to the setting the first and second night. So to go back to the informational learning, usually you have the next eight years already planned. You've got the standards from middle states or the standards from the Department of Education already stated for the next eight years or even 12 years. That's well and good, but when are you listening to the students to find out what they need and what they're bringing? Right. All right, so I could have already planned out all five sessions. And I could set it up into cluster groups, and I, I, we could have 10 minutes where it's more leader-focused than other times. But I've got to listen to what they bring before I can adapt what it is I want to talk about, or we want to talk about, so it better meets their needs. Right. That's a big difference between constructivism and informational learning. I have a, I have a question. Okay. <laughs> Are you enjoying this? I've never thought about some of this stuff before. You're literally in the moment doing some constructivist learning. Oh, yeah. Okay. I feel as though we should do a seminar in front of people about this. I know some people. We should we should shop this around to other churches. Um, the thought I had, and maybe we should wrap it up with this. Okay. Let's say someone is committed to the Jesus path. Great. Cool. Whatever denomination, whatever kind of faith community you have, fine. But you're committed to that path. The idea is that all of us should be perpetual disciples, perpetual students of our collective rabbi. Okay? Now, I could see some people burning out on the Jesus path if all they're ever doing is informational learning. Not only that, but you could easily hit 75 and still be the same person that you were at 25. You just have more information, but you've never been changed by it. Okay. So you've never heard other people's points of information. Or or never heard other people's points. Okay. But then a lifelong constructivist approach towards the Jesus path. Great. You're part of a community and you're listening to the wisdom and the life wisdom. You're sharing your life wisdom and it's... It's a combination of the information and the experiences. And how do we 
synthesize them in a helpful way, but then the transformational model over a lifetime, what might that look like? What insight could you maybe give about what does it mean to be, how, how can we say this in one short quip of a question? How does somebody committed to the Jesus path be committed to lifelong transformational learning? There you go. Can you do it in 30 seconds? That was a joke. I don't think it's possible in 30 seconds. Well, first off, everybody has their own own path in the spiritual in the spiritual growth. Right. But I I think all of us have a rhythm. It could be a daily rhythm, could be a weekly rhythm. Um, all of us probably have times when we, if we really want to be intentional, we have to continue growing. We have to continue reading. We have to continue be intentional about growing. And for all of us, whether we like it or no, not, that will also include some informational learning, right? Um, And then we also, all of us being social beings, have to not only articulate with others, but share what it is that we're learning with others. Because by sharing, we're using the language and the labels that we first learned through the informational model to begin to tease out what other people think, right? And then in our own quiet way, and mine tends to be, well, it used to be when I was commuting, when I was driving through the Pine Barrens. I don't do that much anymore. But every day, I usually it's around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I just kind of chill the jets and get a cup of tea, sit over there in Dad's recliner, and I study something, and I read something. If it's not devotional, it might be from the book that we're, that we're studying together, right. or it could be um, a book on pedagogy and spirituality. Um, I'm thinking about, what's the orange one I'm looking at? Soul Feast. Oh, Soul Feast, yeah. And that helps me to go deeply, in down, down deep, and to begin to transform what is um, what it is that I'm learning. So I think within our weekly rhythm, all of us have moments when we are very much tied into being informationally driven with its strengths and its vulnerabilities. We're highly social, though some of us are more social, more squiggly than others, <laughs> um, and hopefully have opportunities to allow the word to speak to our hearts in ways that we hadn't thought about before. Um, I think Jesus meets us in any one of those three domains. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't know if he ever had informational pieces because he had all wisdom coming because of his source, but certainly he was dialogic, social. Mm-hmm. But he also knew when to separate and to, and to go off on his own and to pray. And he also understood the power of transformation. Now, I don't know where we're going to be 20, 30 years from now. They'll, every 20, 30 years, there's a major paradigm shift in education. In, in education. And I would assume it'll have something to do with technology. But I don't know where we're going to be. I hope I can see it. Mm. I would... I, I, I think it will be fascinating to see what that looks like. Um, 
I haven't thought about that before either. I, I think learning is going to rely on things like this more and more. The classroom is not obsolete. It's still a, a laboratory for learning and growth. But with the invention of the internet and people able to get access to lectures or listen to things, people are going to be able to listen to a graduate level course while mowing their lawn. Podcasts. Podcasts, yeah. But that's just a different mode of transmitting information that's still one-sided. But I, I think Socrates was always constructivist. He was always asking questions, helping people to pull out their own life wisdom. So I, I could maybe see there's another, perhaps another model on the way. But these ones seem to have already stood the test of time. Well, and when we moved from informational learning, where children all sat in their desks, and people had their own individual desks in the corporate world, and probably their own little rooms with windows or not, then the 1980s, we moved from that to um, the constructivist paradigm you may not remember but when you went to elementary school they had pods and they had the, the open classroom where they'd have four or five pods of students um, and that would all reconvene for social time in the middle of the room all right the workplace then opened up the use of uh, cubicles and many corporations became highly influenced by that constructivist model by using cubicles. Now, now that I think about it, cubicles were also a part of the earlier paradigm. Now we have the think tanks. We get everybody into the room if there's a problem and together they lay it out, they map it out and then, which is unpack, and then they come up with a shared wisdom of how to move that problem forward. Mm. What we have with in the workplace now is the use of more and more technology. So the people, the worker is coming in much more nimble with the technology available to him or her, uh, and a far wider, wider resource base, because they do have the internet at their own instantaneous fingertips. Mm -hmm. You know, you're constantly pulling out your phone and looking at something. You know. Um, Aunt Nancy's constantly picking up her phone. Oh, 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 yeah, there are 12 sets of teeth and such and such. I'm like, like, who cares? <laughs> you know, it's going to change the workplace, which means it's going to have to change leaders in the workplace because the person coming into the workforce will be a very different learner and participant in the next decade than we had in the 60s and the 80s mm -hmm. and the turn of the century. Are you you're done? <laughs> that was a good ender. All right. Well, we t we chatted about informational, constructivist, transformational learning, and church culture, and even a little bit about work culture is going to change. So is changing. Is changing. It's all very fluid. Very fluid. That's what makes it exciting. If if people can get over the fear of the change of it and instead say this is exciting, this is we'll see what happens. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for your time. <laughs>
great fun. It was just like what we would do every night with you guys around. We just didn't have Dad and Steve here at the same time, and it's not 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, that's right. It's all good. <laughs> Although at this point, we would maybe talk, and then all of us would slip into taking a small nap, and then we would wake up sometimes in time for dinner. Sometimes it would be four. But thanks, Mom. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to, I'm glad to tease out what I didn't know I thought about. That's well done. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.